Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Winemakers in the Bay Area have been personally affected by the effects of climate change. Things like heat, drought, and wildfires. And many of them have been hit hard. But they've also been adapting and trying to change the way they do things so that their livelihoods can survive. Wine is not going away in California. You know, it's like one of the premier growing places in all of the world. And people are going to work really hard to protect it and make sure it adapts really well. Today, how two North Bay wineries are adapting to climate change. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. The wine world has been affected by drought and wildfires a lot in the past couple years. Ezra David Romero covers climate for KQED. This is our third drought since like 2009. Some of them were longer, some of them were shorter. So the wine country has been hit really hard by the effects of climate change, right? Drought, wildfires. Earlier this summer, I went to a winery in Mendocino County, and they said that their wine production last year was 20% less. So I wanted to do a check-in with wineries and the agricultural world deeper in the drought, deeper into the summer. So that's sort of why I returned to this idea of going to some wineries and figuring out what was happening there. I want to move on now to talk about one of those wineries, um, Hamill Family Wines. I know you visited them in Sonoma County. What does their vineyard look like? Can you just describe it for me? Yeah, so when you when you drive up to their vineyard, they have this big gate. And then you go up this road, this long winding road, and there's olive trees lining it until you get to this wine tasting area that overlooks the Sonoma Valley area. We're probably going to end up being 
fully in the fog, you might not be able to see anything. But typically on a clear day, you can see out to the coastal range and then also the San Francisco skyline. So it's a I met John Hamill II. He's the managing director of the winery. And basically he's in charge of the operations of the winery, like out in the fields and those kinds of things. Did you ever think you'd be making wine? No, I didn't. I had no idea, to be honest. Uh, I, I would I would have thought if anyone told me that, you know, it was a total joke. We went to where they grow grapes, and that's like 15 minutes away, up on the side of a mountain. Yeah, you can kind of see also with like the vegetation already starting to change color, like... Kind of hilly, yeah, like, it's kind of iconic California, Golden Hills. There's just hills and hills of um, vineyards. Obviously, one of the things you need to grow a lot of crops is water. How has the drought affected the way that John and his workers grow the grapes? Right after that drought we had from like 2011 to 2016, uh, John Hamill's winery started dry farming about 20% of their vineyards, and then they grew that to 80%. So tell me where we're at. So we're at Nuns Canyon. We're in our block six. Uh, it's Cabernet Sauvignon. And these vines haven't received, they haven't received a drop of water since 2017. Okay, and they're still green. Well, yeah, I, when I say dry farming, that means they don't use any water on those vineyards. They just use what falls from the sky and what comes from the clouds and what comes from fog and things like that. So that's sort of how they adapted, you know, by not watering their plants. And the ones they do water, they just water sparingly and in a really pointed way. And the goal for us is basically to wait as long into the season as possible until we feel like the vine can't go any further. And then we'll do a single deeper irrigation at that point. But you're, you're, you're essentially training the vine to endure more drought each season. And they didn't do this dry farming because of the drought per se. John Hamill went to France on his honeymoon with his wife and he met some famous winemaker and the winemaker asked him do you dry farm and he was like no we don't and the other guy said that's all we do there wasn't really much of a culture here of wanting to pursue the idea beyond a few niche um, places when i got back from the trip basically i tried to look uh to understand who was doing it at a really high level and and try to understand as much as i could about how they were doing it and then in 2017, they said like, okay, let's try it. So we did about 20% of their 100 acres dry farming. And then, you know, 2021, he's up to 80%. We should be able to get close to about 90 to 95% um, year over year. The drought doesn't make things easier by any means. We, we really are on a razor's edge all season, but I hope in the next five years we'll be about that. He said, you know, it was sort of serendipitous that he did this and then the drought happened and it really helped because he had these vines that had for three or four years were already used to drought. This is the first year where I feel like we've really had a payback for the work that we've done because the vines have been trained to deal with the drought every single summer for the past four years. They have some endurance for this. How much water has the Hamill family saved by doing this? Yeah, he told me that they saved about 2 million gallons of water last year. So that's a lot of water mm -hmm. um, when you're not using any or very little to water your crops. And he said that he thinks it works there on his property because, 
you know, they're often in the clouds. They're on the side of this mountain. They're in the coastal mm-hmm. range. You know, it can be hot, but it can also be very cool. Um, they do get rain, things like that. And But he said, you know, this I- idea of dry farming may not work to this level in a place like the Central Valley where it's really hot, um, where it's 110 degrees in the summer. And, you know, it's all that agriculture is like it's sort of grown in the desert. Ezra, do you know how common is this method of farming? This method isn't used very commonly in California. Hamill Family Wines is one of the few in California that that do it this way. John did tell me, though, he does feel like this is like a returning to what used to happen in California. Before we had this like vast system of canals and reservoirs that bring water everywhere, you know, we didn't have that. And so farmers relied on rain. If you look at Europe, I mean... They, were, they have been dry farmed for thousands of years. Even in California, Northern California, Napa, Sonoma, it wasn't until like the 70s and 80s that irrigation became prevalent. It seems like Hamel fan, Family Wines has adapted pretty well so far to the drought and they've really figured out how to adapt based on you know, their location and the weather and the climate in their particular part of the state. How is John thinking about the way climate change is affecting and affects what he does? I asked him some pointed questions around this. Do you ever think about like how, you know, climate change is brought on by fossil fuels, right? Emissions we put into the atmosphere um, and that that has an effect on what you, on your living. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I think the writing is like pretty clear. I unfortunately or fortunately have a job that's very connected with the conditions changing. He basically said that we need to get the ball rolling on curbing fossil fuel emissions and you know I felt like you don't really hear that very often from a farmer or a grower and so he was really pointed about that and I think he understood that climate change is happening because his farm is feeling the effects of it. It's almost like the pendulum has been swinging more radically. So we have really high rainfall years, close to double the amount of average rain, or we have almost half of the normal rainfall. But um, yeah, it's super difficult to get through an entire season. And and I think that's agriculture, you know, Um, it's humbling. Another vineyard that you visited is called Green and Red. Can you tell me a little bit about that and some of the people that you spoke with there? So Green and Red Vineyards is in the hills of Napa County. You know, they grow mostly Zinfandel grapes there. The property is just under 200 acres, um, but there's only 31 acres planted to vine because it's so radically hillsidey. Tobin Hemingway is the owner there. She works there with her husband and another number of other people. My father um, bought this property in 1969, um, and the first vines that he planted were in 1972, right here that you're looking at. Um, the first vintage was 1977. This wine, I guess, is served in places like Chez Panisse, like famous um, restaurants and places like that. How has Tobin experienced climate change at Green and Red? Tobin took over the winery from her father in 2019 or so. He passed away. In 2020, in that September-August time frame, we had that big storm where there were something like 10,000 lightning strikes across California. It was actually the day before we were going to start harvesting, Monday, August 17th. 
One of those lightning strikes was on the mountain next to their house. We were evacuated that afternoon. The fire started that morning. Then the, the wind shifted. It actually was in our favor for a couple of days, and then it circled back on Wednesday, and it came up, and it almost, um, it almost burnt our house down, which is up above on the property, and it circled two of our vineyards. They said the grapevines acted like a fire break, so it didn't like burn all their vines and that wasn't a really bad deal. But what was a bad deal was that when they tested their grapes or the juice from the grapes to see if it, they were gonna taste too smoky, that happened. And so they lost all of their red grapes for 2020. So you didn't bottle any of that? that no, no reds for 2020 at all. Wow. Are there other impacts of climate change that they're dealing with on the day-to-day -day basis? So climate change at its base, right, is warming, right? So they're dealing with heat waves. You know, California's already hot, but it's getting hotter. You know, we have these, like, we've had these, like, heat waves this past summer where it was, like, 106, 107 in places that it's normally not. During that time, on her, on their winery, you know, it was getting so hot that their grape leaves on some of their vineyards were getting scorched. And when I guess when grape leaves get too hot, they kind of turn away, turn away and like look for shade like anyone would do. Like when it's hot and you don't want to get burned, you go and find some shade. And that exposes the grapes underneath of them. And then in that 106 degree weather or so, those grapes become raisins or they kind of get pruny looking like raisins. And they don't want that to happen because that doesn't make good wine. Mm. I liken it to being a chef that, that doesn't get to, to plate their meal. Another person I met at Green and Red Vineyards was Aaron Whitlatch. He's the winemaker there. You know, they spend all day chopping, chopping things and preparing it, and then you just don't, you don't get to put it out on the plate for people to enjoy. Aaron Whitlatch came up with this idea that they could spray liquid clay onto the leaves, and it was this idea from Australia, and I think some other people have done it in California, but you spray liquid clay on the leaves, kind of like a sunscreen. It looks like chalk, but it, it's, it's a, an organic clay. It doesn't affect the, the fruit quality. Uh, it just, like I said, it maintains canopy temperatures and keeps your, your leaves from scorching uh, on those hot days. And that really helped. And they said it like lowered the temperature and it saved those grapes. So overall, how is Green and Red Vineyard holding up and are things looking better this year compared to last year? Yeah, when I asked them about this year, they were just sort of giddy that they could pick their grapes before a fire happened. And they were really happy about that because last year they lost all of their red grapes. They have some white. They, they picked those earlier. And that was sort of like a deep breath of fresh air because they've only been doing wine there for two years as a couple. And... You know, to have a couple years without wine is that seems like a big deal. And I, I imagine that this must be on Tobin's mind a lot because her father started this winery and he passed away a couple of years ago. How is she thinking about the idea of carrying on her father's legacy at the winery with climate change kind of as the backdrop. We're all questioning our, what are we doing here? Who are we connected with? How are we connected to the earth? What, how, what does our future look like? And um, do we have any control? Yeah, when I asked her like what her future would look like there at the winery, if you know climate change is helping them reach a tipping point of whether they would not do this anymore or not, and or they'd grow something different, you know, she said that's something she's considered. I've thought about 
maybe considering a different varietal. <laughs> but that doesn't really make sense because my father's legacy is founded on Zinfandel. It's like, on this very land is her father, right? Like he's in the grapes, he's in the vineyards, he's in like the water there, the home. So climate change and drought, they're not just putting in jeopardy like the water we drink, like the air we breathe, but they're also putting in jeopardy like the experiences we have and the memories we have with people. And for Tobin, that was what was happening with her, with her dad, you know? This idea that climate change, all these threats could thwart like this place that she loves with her father. And you know, that's something she holds precious and doesn't want to lose. And I think that's why they're trying to adapt in the ways they can. I mean, and every day is a new day, um, and you, you do what you need to do. I mean, and that, that, that's what's motivating us for now. Jay, the legacy is keeping us going. I feel like I've seen so many stories in the last couple of years about how wildfires and smoke are having this huge impact on the wine industry. But at the same time, it sounds like there are folks who are doing a lot to really adapt how worried should we be about the wine industry? It's true that climate change and drought are affecting the wine country. But when I talked to a wine expert named Khan Kurtural, he's a UC Davis viticulturalist, a wine specialist that works in the Napa Valley area and in UC Davis. He basically told me that yes, all that's happening, but it's not affecting the wine world enough for them to stop making wine. Drought is not coming for wine, but yes, they should be worried about uh, climate change. For, uh, for grapes, they're uh, quite uh, resilient and uh, growers are uh, able to adapt to this uh, quite well. He basically said growers have been adapting to climate change since forever, but in his studies, it was like since 1980 or so, and the warming has started, started to escalate. And he said growers have been adapting to climate change since then. So as long as, uh, you know, their uh, growers are uh, making money, uh, they will uh, keep them because uh, it's a business. You know, comparing uh, other cash crops, there's nothing uh, more resilient. Ezra, when you think about these two wineries that you visited, Hamill Fam Family Wines and Green and Red, what do they have in common when it comes to dealing with climate change? I think the, the commonality that I saw with both of them is that they're trying, right? And that they are adapting and that they are doing something about this, right? In On their property in a way they can. Because I think that's what they have to do. If you're just reading the news media, right, and you see all the articles or just the headlines or the Instagrams or the videos that are like, you know, climate change fires are consuming wine country, it's the worst, and like, yes, that's real, that's happening, but like, overall, the wine industry is still making a lot of money. Wine is not going away in California. You know, it's like one of the premier growing places in all of the world, and People are going to work really hard to protect it and make sure it adapts really well. And I think that's sort of evident in the two wineries I went to, right? They're adapting in ways they can because at the end of the day, they, these are businesses and these are people's lives and these are legacies in California that they don't want to lose. Ezra, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks to Ezra David Romero, climate reporter for KQED. 
You can find Ezra on Twitter at Ezra Romero. And you can find us at the Bay KQ. And I just wanted to take a moment to shout out our producer, Mary Franklin Harvin, who helped us produce and cut this episode and each of the episodes you heard last week. Thank you so much for the assist, Mary Franklin. Our editor, Alan Monticilio, scored this episode and added the tape. And that is it for us at The Bay. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Talk to you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.